Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and dust and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. For when your treasure is there, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. <clears throat> Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Instead, life, I'm sorry, instead, life more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to your lifespan by worrying? And when you do worry about clothes, observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grasses of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do that much more for you? Oh, you of little faith. So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles, Gentiles eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided to you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Thank you, Kathy. Turning your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, your, your bulletin says Matthew chapter 5. That's my fault. I uh, said chapter 5, and I meant chapter 6. Have you ever <laughs> done that? I feel like that's happening to me more often. Uh, before we go to prayer, uh, let me just mention a few things. Um, Marianne McMinn asked for prayer for her great-granddaughter, Aspen. Aspen is three and a half weeks old and just had heart surgery a couple of days ago. And uh, she is doing well, uh, but it is a very serious surgery that she's had. And um, so uh, Marianne has asked us to pray uh, together for her complete healing. I also want to pray for uh, Pastor Guy. He is traveling today and probably tomorrow as well uh, back from Armenia. So uh, let's go ahead and look to the Lord in prayer. Father, first of all, thank you. You have taken care of us in so many ways. You've provided for us, you've protected us, you have poured out your lavish and undeserved blessing in just every area of our lives. The fact that we're sitting here today in this building, in a nation where we are free to do so, that in and of itself is a tremendous blessing that many of our brothers and sisters 
can't even imagine around the world. And so we thank you for that, Father. Uh, Father, we thank you for gathering us as a church family and putting us into, the, uh, into one another's lives and, and giving us a diversity of gifts and talents so that we can build up the body. That is your wisdom and your design, and, and, and you orchestrate that in order to build up the body of Christ and, and to use us as a testimony to your grace. And, and we want to thank you for the ways that you have uh, gifted your people to do your work. I thank you most of all for Jesus, who gave us this teaching and who gave us himself. Lord, this morning we want to lift up our our brother, uh, Pastor Guy, as he travels home. I ask that you would keep him safe and that the fruit that they saw on this trip would remain and grow and bear more fruit. Uh, We pray for Pat and Carla Narcomy as they minister in Gordon. I ask that you would pour out your blessing on their ministry and use them there with that congregation to build them up. Uh, Father, we pray for uh, little Aspen, and we ask that you would heal her heart after this surgery and that you would bring her through the, the steps that are necessary to take her off of the little ventilator that she's on and Uh, to heal the scars and the uh, wounds, and to uh, give her parents your peace. And I pray that you would, uh, that she would just be a testimony of your gracious healing power, and that everybody involved would be able to look back and say, wow, look look at what the Lord has done. Uh, Father, we ask as well that as we examine your word, that you would help us to be a grateful church a church that recognizes the many, many ways that you've poured out your blessing on us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Rome, A.D. 62. Paul stretched and rubbed his tired eyes as he hunched over a piece of parchment. The air in his tenement apartment Surrounded by primitive Roman concrete and lit by a small glazed window in the corner, was ripe from overcrowding and lack of ventilation. His jailer, a muscular member of the Imperial Guard, lay dozing on a straw pallet a few feet away, connected to Paul by a chain attached to both of their ankles. As a Roman citizen, Paul had been granted the privilege of house arrest rather than being thrown into a dungeon as he awaited trial. But that didn't mean then what it means today. He wasn't playing video games in his parents' basement with an electronic anklet around his ankle. Uh, The little room he shared with guards who rotated through shift by shift was certainly no better than the prison cells occupied by today's most notorious convicted criminals. Paul's trial was ongoing. His life hung in the balance. At any moment, he could be whisked away to the executioner on the whim of the emperor. Not only that, but he didn't have very much opportunity to support himself financially. He had to depend on the generosity of friends and acquaintances. Some days, that generosity was forthcoming, and then other days, well, it wasn't. And it was in the midst of these circumstances that Paul took up his stylus, dipped it in ink, 
and began to write a thank you letter to his friends hundreds of miles away in the city of Philippi because of their generous financial gift that they had sent to him a few days before. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking in respect of being in need. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This man who had been shipwrecked, who had been beaten and left for dead, who had been languishing in prison for years, was happier, more content, more grateful than we typically find ourselves and our neighbors with our air conditioning and our grocery delivery service and our religious and political freedoms and all the other wonderful things that we enjoy and sometimes take for granted. We live in an age in which it is normal, it's expected even, to chase after more, more, more. We have never been more secure, but we've also never been, perhaps, more anxious about the future, about what we might lose, about the prospect that someday we may not have enough. Do you really want to live like that? I know I don't. I don't want to be greedy. I don't want to live in anxiety over the future. I want to learn the secret of being content. I want to be able to do what Paul told another church down the road in, uh, from Philippi, the church in Thessalonica. He said, in everything, in every circumstance, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. You know what kind of church I hope Indian Creek is and that we become and that we grow in? A thankful church, a contented church, a grateful church, a church that's learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, a church in which the members don't need to see a lot of bells and whistles, a lot of spectacular stunts, not even the demons subjected to them because they would rather rejoice that their names are written in heaven. Isn't that the kind of church that you want Indian Creek to be? Isn't that the kind of church you want to be a part of? Don't you want a little bit of that inner peace, that contentment, that resiliency, that gratitude to rub off on you? Wouldn't you rather be like that one thankful leper who came back and said thank you to Jesus than the nine who went away and didn't say anything? The Bible has a lot to say about this topic, but I can't think of a better place for us to learn this than from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself in one of his most famous sermons here in Matthew chapter 6. Here in this portion of scripture, Jesus gives us four principles to help us become grateful and contented people in a grateful church. Uh, so notice with me in the first place from verses 19 through 21, principle number one, invest your treasure in the right place. Invest your treasure in the right place. If you want to learn gratitude and contentment, then you must learn to invest wisely. You must locate your treasure in a safe place. You've got to pick the right bank. You don't want to put all of your treasure and your belongings in a Ponzi scheme. Uh, Jesus says literally, do not 
treasure your treasures on earth. Treasure your treasures in heaven. Notice the context. Jesus is in the middle of his sermon on the mount. Essentially what Jesus is doing in these three chapters, chapter 5 through 7, is he is taking his place as the new and better Moses. And he's offering this authoritative teaching uh, that, that will supersede the ethics of the old covenant law and in fact serve as the moral basis for life as a new covenant believer. He is describing, in other words, the kind of life that makes sense for followers of Jesus in the here and now. Well, in the immediate foreground is this warning that he's issued. If you go back and read from the beginning of chapter 6, he issues this warning. He says, don't make the mistake of practicing your righteousness in front of men. But what we want to focus on is why that is. Why would that be a mistake? Because when you practice your righteousness, when you pray and you fast and you give your tithes and offerings in front of other people, you get your reward here in this earth, but there's a reward that's greater than the rewards that you can get from other people. And so uh, the, the temporary rewards of this life are nothing in comparison with the rewards of heaven, and it's on this point that he sort of taps the brakes and he says, think about that for a moment. Think about it. You want to please God because rewards that last are better than the, the fleeting rewards of this earth. So let's just take a moment to apply that to our money and our possessions and our wealth. That's what he does beginning in verse 19. He calls these things treasures. Now that's kind of an old-fashioned word to us, but really all it means is just like savings. It's, uh, it's your wealth, it's your savings, it's your stash, it's your reserves, it's like your nest egg. And he points out that when it comes to worldly wealth, if you've got your treasure, your savings wrapped up in these worldly types of currency, there are two problems. Number one, wealth, worldly wealth, earthly wealth has a way of wearing out. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? That's where moth and rust destroy. Your worldly wealth, your earthly wealth, it wears out. You buy a new car, it loses value the moment you drive it off the lot. You save $1,000 in your bank account, and inflation begins to eat away at the buying power of that $1,000. You invest in real estate, even real estate. It's going to require a lot of financial investment and sweat equity just to keep it from falling into disrepair. You see, earthly wealth has this tendency to either go down in value or lose its luster in the eye of the beholder. I mean, think about it, if, think about it from the perspective of a truly, really mega wealthy person, if you had a billion dollars, I can't even imagine having that much money, but if you had a billion dollars, would it make, would it really practically make a whole lot of difference in your life if you had two billion dollars? I mean, your life would be the same. It would just be a fact, a number on a sheet. Wealth wears out. The other problem with earthly wealth is that it's not secure. Jesus says thieves break in and steal. Sure, we can diversify, we can buy insurance, we can do all sorts of things to give us greater security, but ultimately earthly wealth is not secure. Your stocks, your bonds, they can lose value. Uh, your gold and your silver can be stolen. Even that real estate depends on the political stability of the nation in which we live. If that breaks down, no one's really going to care whose name is on the deed. Now, the nature of earthly wealth is that it's not secure, but Jesus doesn't point this out to make us all feel bad and get a sick feeling in our stomach. He's trying to make a bigger point. 
He points it out to show us that there's a kind of wealth you can accumulate that doesn't wear out and is completely secure treasure in heaven. At no point will it lose its luster or its value. At no point can it be taken away. And so he takes it a step farther. He says, when your treasure is located on earth, your heart is going to be tied to that treasure. But if your treasure, if your nest egg, if your savings are tied to the treasures of heaven, then your heart is going to follow it there too, and your heart is going to be tied to heaven. So he says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In other words, your heart, your affections, your desires, your feelings, your thoughts, your will, who you really are, they're going to follow your treasure. So friends, this is one of the keys to the life of gratitude and contentment. Money and possessions here on earth, they are depreciating, unsafe assets. They will wear out and they're not safe. That's bad enough, but your heart goes with that treasure. And that means that if your heart, your affections and desires, your feelings and thoughts are tied to something that is going down in value and can be snatched away at any time, then guess what's going to happen to your heart? Your heart's going to be fragile. Your heart's going to go down, too. Your contentment is going to not be there. But on the other hand, if your treasure is invested in that which will not wear out and cannot be taken away, and your heart follows that investment, then that means that the core of who you are will be unshaken by the ups and the downs of circumstances and the things that you face in this life. So here's the point. Test this truth. Test it out for yourself. Look at your life. If your treasure, if your nest egg, so to speak, is tied up in your retirement, then where's your heart going to be? you're going to be thinking a lot about your retirement. It's just a fact of life. If your nest egg, if your treasure is tied to the future of your children and your grandchildren, then that's where your heart's going to be. If your heart is tied up in your house, that's, or your treasure's tied up in your house, that's where your heart's going to be. If it's tied up in your education, that's where your heart's going to be. If it's tied up in diet and exercise and physical health, then that's where your heart is going to be. But, but just try this truth on. If you would, if you would test it out, if you would see what happens to your heart when you begin to invest that treasure in heavenly things, see what happens to your heart. I mean, you, you all know people, most of you know people, who have given their lives to, to fulfill the Great Commission. They've given up wealth. They've given up a lot of the comforts that we all enjoy in order to fulfill the Great Commission. And I just, I dare you to see what happens to your heart if you begin to say, I'm going to invest a little bit of my treasure in the mission that that person is going to accomplish. See what happens to your heart. It will follow that investment. And you'll begin to care about what's going on in that other side of the world or that, where that other person is ministering. The more your wealth is tied to eternal things, the less your heart will be tossed by the circumstances of a life that won't last anyway. Yes, you'll grow in contentment and gratitude. So that doesn't mean that we don't save. It doesn't mean that we don't plan. It doesn't mean that we don't work. But it does mean that when it comes to our wealth, to invest in something that's going to last for eternity is going to take our hearts to a place where they're content and, grati- and, and grateful and thankful. Principle number one, invest our treasure in the right place. Principle number two from verses 22 and 23, align your focus. 
Align your focus. Uh, Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What is Jesus talking about here in these two verses? In order to understand this statement, we have to look at the context. Immediately before and immediately after these two verses, Jesus is talking about wealth, about money and possessions. So it seems to me that Jesus is speaking less about one's physical eyes, as important as it is to be careful little eyes what you see, that doesn't seem to be the main idea of what he's talking about here. What's he talking about? He's talking about our focus. He's talking about what we're focusing on. The eye directs the body. We rely on our eyes to help us know where to go. We rely on our eyes to help us know what we're doing. If there's something wrong with the way that your eyes are functioning, that's going to impact the entire body, the entire function of your body. If you can't focus properly, if you can't focus on the right things, your whole body's going to be affected. Uh, Here's how I think of it. Jesus' statement, it reminds me of uh, a few years ago when it seemed like all the kids were getting those hoverboards for Christmas. A few of the kids in our neighborhood, uh, do you know what I'm talking about? It's uh, you stand on it and you can go forward or backward and do tricks on it. Some of you are like, I don't know what that is. Okay, you can look it up. Not right now. Uh, but anyway, some of the kids in our neighborhood got these hoverboards uh, for Christmas and they were riding them around the street and they were out in front of our house one day and I, you know, kind of was feeling confident and I said, do you mind if I try that out? I've never used anything like that. Well, I don't know if you've ever tried one of those things, but they are harder than they look for anyone born in the 20th century. You can end up flat on your back. You can end up pulling a muscle. You can tear a meniscus. I mean, there's all sorts of things you can do to your body uh, if you don't know what you're doing. But, and of course, I kept falling over and after about the third try, I realized I had been looking at my feet. I'd been getting on the, the board and looking at my feet, and then, of course, I would fall. And so here's what I did. I took a deep breath. I entered into a state of deep concentration, and I began to look intently at a fixed point 10 or 12 yards away, and I stepped on the hoverboard, and after a few wobbles, there I stood and stayed. And I was successful to, I, okay, I didn't actually go anywhere. <laughs> but I was able to stay upright. What was the difference? It wasn't my arms or my legs or, or my core strength as, as weak and, and, and you know, to be, leaving a lot to be desired as that is. No, what was the problem? It was my eyes. It was my focus. When I focused on my feet, I fell. When I started to focus on the right thing, something solid, something that's fixed, something that I could trust, something that I could rely on, it worked. By the way, mom and dad, if you're watching this and you wanted to get your favorite son a hoverboard for Christmas one, one year, that would, that would be fine. No one would object. But the point is, where's your focus? You want to know why you're not a grateful person. It may be, it may be because of what you're focused on. Say, well, Jake, I've been through a lot. You don't understand. No, that's not why you're not a grateful person. 
That's not why. There are plenty of people who have been through a lot greater difficulty than you have been through. Their faces shine with contentment and gratitude. So don't tell me it's because of your circumstances. No, the reason is what you're focused on. It's your eyes. Your eyes are filled with darkness. You're focusing on all the wrong things. You love the world, the desire of the eyes, and the desire of the flesh, and the pride of possessions. Your gaze is fixed on everything except Jesus. Of course you're going to struggle with gratitude. You want to know why some churches miss this? Why some churches you walk in and people are grumbling, they're complaining, they're not thankful, they're not uh, grateful for what God has given them? It's because they're always thinking about the things that they don't have instead of thinking about the Savior that they do have. Man, I wish we had music like that other church. Wish we sang more hymns. Wish we sang more praise and worship songs that I like from the radio. I wish there were more people here who I could get along with. I wish we had a facility like the church I visited on vacation. And, and folks, I hope, I hope that is not why we're building this building. If, if so, we need to hang it up right now. Focusing on what we're missing rather than what we've been given, that's no way to become a thankful church. I don't want to be like that, do you? No, let's focus on the Savior. You want to grow in gratitude, then your gaze must be fixed on that which will not sway with the winds of circumstance. Let's make it about Jesus. First principle, invest your treasure in the right place. Second principle, align your focus. Principle number three from verse 24. Choose your master. Choose your master. Have you ever had two bosses? The boss and the boss's wife? How does that go? Or the boss and the boss's husband. Sorry. <laughs> or a rogue supervisor who goes against the owner's wishes when she isn't around to tell you what to do. I mean, how hard is that? Or from the other side, imagine you own a service company, but one of your, te- one of your technicians is trying to go out and go into business for himself, and you find out in the course of things, that while he's on the job working for you, he's trying to upsell and get business for himself. I mean, how is it going to go for that guy? This kind of thing doesn't work out. You can't have two masters. It's, it's not going to work for you to go sell cars for the Lexus dealership on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and then for the Mercedes dealership on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Why? Because you're going to hate the one and love the other. You're going to be devoted to the one and reject the other. It's impossible to serve both. It's like getting married and then running back to mommy and daddy every time you have a problem with your spouse. That's not going to work. You can't be a mama's boy and your spouse's Knight in shiny armor all at the same time. You're going to have to choose. There are certain types of relationships that demand exclusive devotion. And the point that Jesus is making in verse 24 is this. Some of you say you're serving God, but really you're serving money. I mean, isn't that the truth? Don't we find that in our own hearts so often? Isn't that really my problem? When I find myself struggling the most with contentment, it's when I say with my mouth, that God is number one, but in my heart, I know money's number one. Doesn't that kill gratitude? Isn't that one of the greatest threats to our spiritual health and the spiritual health of our families and the spiritual health of our church? Isn't this one of the ways we're robbed of joy? Isn't it because we're ground into the dust by a master we were never intended to serve? Money is a horrible, slave-driving master. 
You say, how do I know if I've made wealth my master? Well, there are probably a lot of ways, but let me ask you a few questions. What are you willing to give up in order to get more of it or keep more of it? Here's another question. Why is it that you never take any time to rest? Do a little soul searching. Some of you can't even sit for an hour or two on a Sunday morning. You say, I get antsy. Why do you get antsy? Well, I have a lot of things to do. Well, why do you have a lot of things to do? And if you drill down, for some of you, it might be because you're trying to build your wealth. Either by earning more at work or by increasing the value of your personal property. So you just can't leave your work to the side for so much as a day. You don't have any kind of habit of a Sabbath because you can't trust your heavenly father to provide for you. That may be because you're trying to serve two masters and it's just not going to work. Like the Israelites who were told to sleep in on Saturday morning, but they still went out of their tents early before the sun rose and were gathering manna. And Moses had to say, what is wrong with you? God's already provided the things that you need. I'll ask another question. What kind of debt are you carrying? I mean, we're really going to get metal here. I mean, we do the things that you're willing to borrow money to obtain. Reflect a heart of contentment or a heart of enslavement, a heart that's divided between two masters. I mean, we borrow money to buy a house, okay. Then we borrow money to buy a car, okay. Then we borrow money to buy furniture, okay. Now we're putting a vacation rental on the credit card, okay. Before long, the payments are starting to eat us alive, and we're having to put grocery and, and, and utility bills on the credit card, and then we have to go get another credit card because we maxed the one we have out. Some of you have had to dig yourselves out of this type of thing, and you know how enslaving it can be. That desire for more, that lack of contentment can be enslaving, and even otherwise godly Christians can find themselves drowning in this type of debt. And by the way, if that's you, let me just tell you, there is a way out, and you can do it, and you have got to, you've got to go after it as soon as you possibly can. But even better than that, let's choose the right master. The writer of the Hebrews said this, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, not what you're going to have once you complete this or that milestone, not what you're going to have once you finish that home improvement project or once you graduate from school or what you're, when you're going to get your tax return. Don't be content when you get that thing in the future. You be content with what you have now. Puritan preacher Jeremiah Burroughs in his excellent little book that you must read, you don't, well, it's a good book to read called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, points out that we typically labor to bring our circumstances up to the level of our desires. But a follower of Jesus, he says, must be someone who labors to bring his desires down to the level of his circumstances. Here's what he says. Quote, A carnal heart knows no way to be contented but this. I have such and such possessions... And if I had this added to them, then I should be contented. But contentment does not come in that way. It comes by subtracting from your desires. It is all one to a Christian, either to attain what I do desire, excuse me, or to bring down my desires to what I already have attained 
That, mean, that doesn't mean, again, that you don't work. It doesn't mean that you don't have goals. It doesn't mean that you don't save. It doesn't mean that you don't plan. But listen, at the level of your heart, search your heart, guard your heart against the enslaving power of wealth. It is one thing to use it, but it is another thing to be used by it. Choose your master. Principle one, invest your treasure in the right place. Principle two, align your focus. Principle three, choose your master. Notice with me principle number four from the rest of the chapter. Gain perspective. Gain perspective. Notice the first word of verse 25. It says, therefore. In other words, Jesus is drawing an inference. He's making an application. He's saying, in view of everything that I've just told you about the need to treasure your treasures in heaven and focus on the right things and serve the right master, here's a practical takeaway. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Now, if you have ever been stuck in that spiral of anxiety, you know just how difficult it is to hear Stop being anxious. Now you're anxious about being anxious, and you just kind of go further and further down the hole. But that's not what Jesus is doing. He's going to equip us with some knowledge that we need to have and give us the perspective that we need to have in order to get out of that vicious cycle. He says, look at the world in which you're living and draw some conclusions. Look at the birds. They don't have barns or bank accounts. They haven't bought insurance. But God takes care of them. And aren't you more valuable than they are? Or look at the flowers of the field. They, they don't do a thing. They just stand there, and they're going to be gone in a few days. But God clothes them. Aren't you more valuable than they are? See, an anxious heart is typically a reflection of a disordered value system. Hear me out. I was at a conference last weekend. One of the speakers put it this way. He said, fear and anxiety often result from ascribing too much power or too much value to a person or an object. So, for example, you tell yourself that uh, your spouse or your girlfriend or your boss or whoever it might be has ultimate power over you. And if you cannot please them, if they're not happy with you, your life is over. And so you get into this cycle of fear and anxiety over their opinion of you. You're ruined, so you get anxious. Or, another example... You tell yourself that something in your life has greater value than it really should. So you lie awake at night worrying about your house. What about that one thing under the house, you know, that part that that I need to fix and I haven't fixed it yet and I'm so worried about that. And you just kind of cycle through it in your mind because what's going on? Your house has all of a sudden more value than it really ought to have. See, what happens is we get an anxious heart when we ascribe more power or more value to something that shouldn't have that much power or value. See, the truth of the matter is that if your boss or your girlfriend or even your spouse, yes, decided that they didn't like you anymore, God could still take care of you. If you lost your house today, that would be hard. But God would still take care of you. So in order to avoid anxiety and grow in gratitude and contentment, we have to reorder our values and our beliefs and remember that if God can take care of the birds and the flowers, then he can certainly take care of me. This is what Jesus means when he says, isn't life more than food? Aren't you valuing your food more than what's really important? I would take it a step further. An anxious person ascribes greater power or value to a person or an object than is really appropriate, but they also forget their own value in the sight of God. 
Isn't that what Jesus asked them? Aren't you of more value than these birds? Aren't you of more value than these flowers? Like, did you forget that God cares about you? That he loves you? And and in order to get our value system back on track, Jesus tells us to get some perspective, and he says, look at three things. Look at, first of all, look at how God has provided. Look at how God has provided. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Look at how God has provided. Think about all the ways he's provided for you. Mandy and I, uh, we've had moments in our life where we were just two to three weeks away from not having any place to live, and God provided. It was okay. We've had, one time our minivan got totaled, the payout barely covered what we still owed for the vehicle, we could not afford to buy a new car, and you know what? We, we're here today, God provided, he took care of us. There have been dozens of ways in which God has provided. Look at our church, two decades ago, the church, Indian Creek Baptist Church, they took some steps of faith, and they, they went, they entered into a project that felt way too big, but God provided And every one of us is reaping the benefits today. They built this building, and we all come here every single week, and we enjoy the benefits and are blessed by what God has done. Less than two years ago, I had to email all of our ministry leaders and tell them, don't spend any money because we don't know what's going to happen financially to our church because of this coronavirus pandemic. And you know what? God provided. You can look at your own life, too. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Do you have the ability to work? Do you have food to eat? Nobody owes us these things. That is God's kindness to us. That's him taking care of you. That's him loving you. Look at how God has provided. Secondly, look at how he has protected. Look at how God has protected us. Don't worry, Jesus says, about what you're going to wear. God knows that you have need of these things. He knows that you need clothing and shelter. Folks, yes, it is true. We have had our share of grief here at Indian Creek, especially in the last few months. But we've also been delivered from sorrow more times in the last year than I have time to to talk about. I mean, God has protected us. Think about the ways he's protected us spiritually. Who knows how many times God has frustrated the schemes of the enemy and protected us from spiritual harm. Who knows how many times he's kept us from despair. Who knows how many ways he's protected us from from sin through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Think about all the ways that God has protected us. Thirdly, look at how he has poured out his abundant, overflowing, lavish blessing on us. Like he's gone beyond providing and protecting. He's like poured out his blessing on us. Jesus says, consider the lilies of the field. They aren't just clothed. They're clothed with a beauty greater than the splendor of Solomon." And isn't that the case with us? I mean, not that any of us in here are good looking. I don't know if that's true, but that was a joke. (laughs) What I mean is, we're not just surviving here. God has poured out his blessing on us. At the heart of all of it, the very person offering this authoritative teaching to us is the most wonderful blessing of all because God didn't just protect or provide or give us wonderful blessings. He didn't just give us things. He gave us himself in the person of Jesus Christ. 
This is what we do every time we come to the table of the Lord. I mean, what we're about to celebrate in just a few moments here, we are giving thanks to God because Jesus provided his own body, his blood, so that we could be right with him. The celebration of communion is certainly a solemn time. It is a time in which we reflect upon the state of our hearts and our minds. It's a time for confession of sin. It's a time of reconciling with our brother. But all of those things are just preparation for a time of celebration and thanksgiving to the Lord for what Jesus has done. Jesus said, this is my body which is for you. For me? Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? How can it be? How can it be? Was ever grace so full and free? From heights of bliss to depths of woe, in loving kindness thou didst go, from sin and shame to rescue me. Oh, love divine, how can it be? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Sometimes what we need is a little bit of perspective. And when we really begin to think about the ways in which we've been shown the loving kindness and the mercy of God, how can we be anything but a thankful church, a grateful church? How can we walk in greed or in discontent or fear or anxious toil? No, we must thank the Lord. So let's invest our treasure in the right place. Let's align our focus where it needs to be. Let's make sure we choose the right master and let's get that perspective. Let's thank the Lord together. Would you do that with me now? Let's thank him. Father, thank you for blessings too many to count. Thank you for our church family. Thank you for providing for our physical needs, for our spiritual needs. Thank you for pouring out your peace in our hearts. Thank you for listening to our prayers. Thank you for reassuring us when our hearts condemn us. Thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus Christ, whose body was broken and whose blood was shed so that our thanks might be heard by you and welcomed. Not condemned, not rejected, not tossed aside, but actually gathered around your table as members of your family. Father, as we go to this time of reflection and confession and celebration, I pray that you would align our hearts with yours and that if there are any ways in which your spirit is convicting us of sin or of uh, some area of, of service that we need to pursue or some reconciliation that we need to pursue, I pray that you would show that to us clearly. And most of all, I pray that you would help us to see Christ in this symbolic meal and remember that this is our destiny, to share life with him forever. And Father, I pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.